Welcome to Had a Magical Day, the podcast about Disney parks that's like taking a vacation in the middle of your day. Hello and welcome to another episode of Had a Magical Day. Uh, it's not just another episode, this is a very special episode because our guest this week is a Disney animator and author, David Bossert. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. Thanks very much for having me on. Oh, I'm glad you could do it. Thank you for being our guest this week. I'm excited to talk to you. You have a new book out. You've written many books, about eight or so books uh, around Disney and animation and Disney people who deserve more recognition than I think they get. And this one in particular is a big one, which is Claude Coates. And it's called uh, Walt Disney's Imagineer. I want it for our, our listeners. Uh, we're going to show some of this on our YouTube channel. Uh, this book is a beautiful book. I'm going to hold it up here and show it, uh, Dave. Thank you. I don't have a copy in front of me. It's a beautiful book with tons of beautiful pictures, but it's also really a great read. And Thank it is you. very dense and it's got a lot of information. Uh, I took my time with it and I really enjoyed reading it. And I learned so much about Claude and Imagineering and how they built a lot of these rides. Um, why don't we get started? And why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became an animator at Disney and how you met Claude and then decided to write this book. Sure. Um, so um, I, I had a, a wonderful 32 year career at the Walt Disney Animation Studios. Uh, I actually started there in early 1983 working on uh, the Black Cauldron. And uh, I, I actually thought it was going to be my first and last film. Uh, and I would head back to New York, where I'm originally from, and, and uh, get into the commercial industry. But um, uh, it wasn't. Uh, they, for whatever reason, decided to hold on to me. And uh, uh, I worked on uh, many great films during what's now, now everybody's calling the renaissance of Disney animation. Um, and uh, during those early years, when I started at the company in 83, I actually had an office in A-Wing in the animation building on the Burbank studio lot at the Walt Disney Studios. And uh, in, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, I guess it was probably early 85, that uh, we were moved out of that animation building and into a, uh, a building over by the Imagineering facility in Glendale. Uh, and so when we got moved over there, we had full access to the Imagineering campus and they had a commissary. Uh, and, and I'm an early bird, so I used to get into the office early. I, I always had this, uh, this uh, um, view that um, uh, I wanted to not sit in traffic going into the office uh, because, uh, you know, sometimes it can be frustrating and, you know, it winds up ruining your day. Uh, and so I would zip down the freeway early in the morning before the, the, the morning rush hour, get into the office and, uh, and then Going home, I didn't care if I sat in traffic because it, it gave me time to decompress from the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and a good and strategy. So, yeah, yeah so that, that's kind of that yeah. yeah, that was kind of how I looked at it all. But uh, by getting in early, I I oftentimes went over to the Imagineering commissary to grab some breakfast, uh, and that's actually where I first met Claude Coates, uh, and um, you know very nice man, very approachable, uh, somewhat intimidating because he was six foot six, <laughs> you know, and uh, but he was the gentlest guy. And uh, uh, I introduced myself to him. And, you know, for about 18 months, uh, I'd see him, you know, once or twice a week. Uh, oftentimes, we'd sit for 15 or 20 minutes before we started our day. And um, uh, I would just pepper him with questions and he'd tell me about the old days and what Walt Disney was like and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, he was in the twilight of a 54 and a half year career at the studio. And I was just a snot nosed kid who was just starting out, <laughs> you know, and uh, and he was incredibly gracious, incredibly nice to me. Uh, and, and at that point in time, I, I had no 
you know, illusions that I would write books. I never even thought about, you know, writing books. Uh, but then when you fast forward 30 something years later, um, I, I actually, you know, wrote a, my first book was uh, Remembering Roy E. Disney. Uh, and then I did uh, Dolly and Disney Destino. Uh, and then I was just kind of on this roll uh, of writing books. And, and I went to uh, uh, the UCLA writers program. Uh, and, you know, I, I figured if I'm going to be writing books, I better get, you know, uh, better at telling stories. Uh, and, and I always had this philosophy that, you know, you never know everything. You, you, you always, you always can learn something new. And, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to hone my skills uh, at writing. And uh, so I went to UCLA's writing, writer's program to do that. And, uh, and, and I just continued to pitch book ideas and, and work on books. And I, one of the things I like to do um, is, is pick topics that really haven't had any coverage. Uh, things that I find interesting, uh, like Kem Weber, uh, mid-century furniture designs for the Disney studios. I mean, he was the architect that Walt went to, uh, to design the new Burbank studio after the wild success of, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, and, uh, and during that, you know, process of designing the studio, uh, he, he took a, a holistic approach of not only designing the buildings, but designing the interiors and then designing the furnishings that went into those interiors. Uh, and he wound up designing 22 pieces of uh, furniture specifically for the various disciplines in the animation uh, process at Disney. And nobody had written about those you know, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I wanted to do that book and Oswald, the lucky rabbit and, you know, uh, and, and obviously Claude Coates, mm -hmm. uh, you know, here we are, you know, we have a guy, Claude Coates, who, as you could tell from my book, had an, an incredible impact uh, on Disneyland and the building of Disneyland and his contributions are really, you know, right up there with, with, you know, certainly, you know, Walt's vision, but I mean, he's one of the key players. He's right there with John Hench and Mark Davis and all that. And, and in fact, you know, you see Mark Davis, uh, had, you know, he's got like three books on him you know, and, right. <laughs> and, 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 and nobody wanted to do a book on Claude Coates because some people internally were like, well, nobody knows who Claude Coates is. Yeah. You know, I really didn't know who Claude was. And to your point, after reading the book, I was like, this might be the most important imaginer of all in a yeah, way. I, I mean, look, he was the show designer and the eyes and ears on Pirates of the Caribbean. He was the eyes and ears for Walt in his final months. Mm-hmm. You know, it's cur curious, like, why doesn't he get more publicity? And I think part of it might be that he was kind of gone before they started venerating the Imagineers like Bob Gurr is still around. And so sure. people talk a lot about Bob Gurr and yeah. even Marty Sklar was around for a long time. Yeah, those guys got a lot of ink and, and, and documentaries and, and, and things. Yeah. And and also Mark lived, I think, 10 years longer than uh, Claude. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mark Davis. You know? Yeah, Mark Davis. So, you know, I, I think, you know, you couple that with the fact that Claude was uh, a very, uh, I, I almost would say introverted kind of a, a artist. Uh, and as you get from reading my book, he was also very much uh, a person who was team oriented. Mm -hmm. He always viewed himself as part of the team. Even if he was the show designer, it was about the team, you know, and he was like the team captain. Uh, and yeah, it, it seemed like he was a great facilitator. Like you have yes. a lot of strong personalities. You need a guy like him. He's kind of the glue. Yeah. He brings a everything together. Absolutely. And, and he was, you know, he, he was the guy that uh, wasn't out tooting his own horn. Uh, he was, he was in the back working on the projects, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and I think that's really, you know, one of the things that, you know, uh, people have overlooked him because of, you know, uh, he, he certainly deserved this book. Uh, and, and, and the way it came about was I was at a conference, uh, five or six years ago now 
Um, and uh, it was a conference in Los Angeles and I was going into the conference room, you know, in, in, into the ballroom where the conference was being held. And this tall guy in a baseball cap is coming towards me. I didn't know him, uh, but he looked at my name badge. I had a name badge hanging on a lanyard around my neck. And, and he said, Dave Bossert, I just got your Dolly and Disney book at Barnes and Noble. And I was just thrilled that my book was at Barnes and Noble. I was like, wow, <laughs> that is cool. And I uh, and I was like, thank you. You know, I, I hope you enjoy it. And I caught his name. It said Alan Coates. And as I walked into this room and he was gone, I'm thinking to myself, Alan Coates, he must be related to Claude Coates. And so I went looking for him during the morning break in the conference. And he apparently had gone home not feeling well. And so uh, a mutual friend of ours uh, uh, put us together via email. And Alan and I agreed to meet up uh, at a restaurant for lunch in Burbank. And, uh, you know, by the end of the lunch, I mean, really, all I wanted to do was tell Alan I knew his father and how kind his father was to me when I was starting out in the business. And, you know, he you know, was incredibly gracious and, you know, talked to me and answered my crazy questions and stuff like that. And, uh, and that's really all I wanted to tell Alan. And by the end of the lunch, Alan asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book on his father. <laughs> and, you know, having written a bunch of books, uh, by that point, I was like, hey, that would be great. I'd love to do that. And I only want to do projects that haven't been done before, mm. you know, because I, I think there's a lot of books, especially in the in the Disney uh, fandom. There's a lot of books that rehash the same material, you know, and and I think I, I probably speak for a lot of people who say I, I'm so sick of seeing the same pictures over and over again, mm. you know, because we all, you know, pick up books and it's like, oh. I've seen that picture. And by the way, there's a few of those pictures in the Claude Coates book, but very few, hmm. you know, uh, but they were important pictures because Claude's in them. Um, you know, for instance, uh, Claude uh, at his desk with Mary Blair, John Hench and Walt Disney, you know, that deserved a spot in the book, even though people have seen that probably countless times. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but, the, but equally, there's plenty of other pictures of Claude that people have not seen at the park, uh, especially during, you know, construction of some of the projects, you know, some of the attractions that he was involved with and stuff like that. Yeah, so, a great one I like of him with the, I think the model of the haunted house, haunted mansion, maybe one of those models where he's, it's just oh, him. it's the Pi Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean. Model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and, so to your point, that this is the first book that's been written about Claude, isn't that? that that's it. This is yeah. the the first and only, only book. And, and actually, you know, I have to say, uh, having completed this book, Alan and I have have not seriously, but we have sort of bantered about maybe doing a second volume that touches on all of his work down at Walt Disney World. Hmm. Uh, and, and sort of that second half of his Imagineering career, which was Walt Disney World, Epcot, uh, Paris and Tokyo. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, so but that, you know, again, it's a major undertaking. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I I'm on to a couple other book projects right now. So but we're, we're going to continue talking about it. And may, maybe it'll happen. All right. Yeah, I hope so. That'd be cool. So talking about Claude and, and his early career. So one of the things. Well, I think he's so important and maybe the most important imaginary, like you said, outside of Walt and maybe Roy O um, is one, obviously he had his hand on like so many iconic rides <laughs> throughout the history of Disneyland yeah. and, and Disney world. But when I think back about the beginning of Disneyland, like people think of Disney now as being so technologically advanced, but most of the rides in Disneyland when they first opened uh, technology wise, they were pretty simple. They were dark rides with uh, a ride vehicle on a track, not that different from what you'd see at carnivals and other amusement yeah. parks. But what made it work was Disney had access to great artists and great storytellers. And it was that level of artistry that really put you in the story in a way that nobody had done before. Yeah. And that's really where Claude comes in, not only designing the ride, but go back to his history 
for us about as a as a painter and an artist yeah. in the background because that kind of sets the mood for these rides and for movies as well the the background and his his work all the beautiful paintings you have in that book are so evocative they create a mood and yeah. put you in a place and i think that's yeah i i mean you know uh uh claude uh claude actually uh, uh he graduated from usc uh, and uh, he he originally started going there uh, for architecture, and he switched midstream to fine art. Uh, and uh, when he graduated, uh, he actually uh, started working in the MGM art department uh, at MGM Studios, and um, uh, and he was making some really good money at that point. I mean, considering it was the mid 1930s, it was still the depths of the depression uh that the great depression and you know he was making good money but he uh heard about things you know some interesting things that were going on at the disney studios and uh, a couple of his colleagues that he was working with uh uh were doing work over at the disney studios and they encouraged him to apply uh and you know, he he put a portfolio together. He tailored his portfolio for for the Disney Studios, and he went over and he got hired right away in 1935. So he spent the first 20 years of his career. He always said he had two careers at Disney. The first 20 years, 1935 to 1955, uh, was in the animation department, and he was uh, one of the top background painters, uh, color stylists, uh, designers uh that uh they had in animation and uh he also had this architecture background and and you know i think one of the great strength strengths of walt disney was as a casting director you know walt could see stuff in uh his artists and and uh, that that the artists themselves didn't see you know and and, and so you know uh by the time claude was doing lady in the tramp uh he he was really sort of done with animation he he didn't want to keep doing that he wanted to he wanted to sort of evolve and stretch and do do something different and and it really was sort of the perfect timing because walt was starting to plan disneyland and you know walt hired a lot of people outside the company who knew amusement parks and that kind of stuff that world but he also wanted to tap into his artists uh and he had asked claude while when claude was nearly done with uh lady in the tramp i think at, at the time he was more or less done with the background paintings but he was doing some ancillary stuff like the golden book the lady in the tramp golden book illustrations and things like that he asked uh, Claude uh, if he would build a, a, a small model of uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And then once once Claude had built that out of, you know, uh, like foam core or, you know, cardboard, uh, he uh, he then asked him if he'd just paint some of the uh, Toad uh, backgrounds uh, to, you know, backdrops to put in there as a uh, as a reference for the art director. Uh, and, and Claude was, you know, he was one of those guys that always said, sure, Walt, whatever you need, you know, he, he was always accommodating. He did it turn. He, Walt loved it. He handed it off and, and he thought that was the end of it. And then one day, and I tell the story in the book, you know, uh, uh, Claude was talking to Ken Anderson in his office and another Disney legend. And, uh, Walt came in and said, Hey, uh, the vendor we hired for Mr. Toad isn't going to be able to do it in time. I need you guys to jump in and help. And, of, and of course, Claude was of the mind to say, okay, Walt, whatever you need, you know, and he went from painting these small, you know, uh, you know, 12 by 18 backgrounds for the animations. Uh, he went, he, he was in a, a tin building on the back lot of the studio painting these huge backdrops on scaffolding uh and they got it done and that's really sort of when his career as an imagineer which the term at that point hadn't even been invented mm -hmm. um that's when he really started uh to uh work and uh and worked closely with walt on on all of these uh things you know and uh and loved it 
You know, he was so happy to not be doing animation anymore. He, he really wanted to stretch his creativity and, and do more. And, and I, as an artist, can relate to that. I mean, my, my whole career was always about evolving and doing different things. And, you know, uh, you do something repetitively on animated films for so long, you want to start to grow and stretch your boundaries and do other things. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I fully understood where he was coming from. Sure. And <clears throat> there's lots of variety in, in the rides that he worked on. So that he must have really enjoyed that aspect of it <clears throat> so right away with the dark rides there were challenges there in terms of different types of art when you talk about it, particularly i think it was at the snow white ride where you had to deal with different kinds of paints uh, you know and different kinds of well lighting. yeah yeah i mean i think it was really the snow white ride the peter pan ride and the toad's wild ride the those three uh he he all of a sudden somehow became the expert in black light painting <laughs> Yeah, and that's a key to making those rides work. And those rides are so enduring today. Like still, there's always a long line for Peter Pan. It's always like an hour plus. It's iconic. It's an iconic yeah. ride, you know, and, and and the refurbishments over the years have, have just continued to improve it, but it still maintains it, its integrity as that original attraction, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing, like apparently, I think in your book, I think Marty Sklar says that, Claude was just the best at laying out a ride. Yeah. And it's really an important aspect of the ride, you know, because it builds the, the story is built by the layout and yeah. turning from one moment to another moment, having it build up and yeah. getting that surprise, whether it's in Snow White's ride or. Yeah. And, 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 and I think it's it, it's about utilizing the space available the most efficiently mm -hmm. uh, as well as and you got and I, I think people have to realize that these guys, you know, Walt and Claude and John Hench and, you know, all of them, they were inventing immersive attractions. They were inventing that. It, it never really existed. I mean, you can't really say a carnival funhouse is an immersive attraction, maybe on the very basic rudimentary level it is, but we're talking about putting guests into a ride vehicle and then putting them into the story that yeah, they become part of the story. And I think that's a really important thing for people to realize is that these immersive attractions were, were taken to the nth degree by, by this group of Disney artists uh, uh, under Walt's leadership. And I would point to Pirates of, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean uh, which is celebrating, uh, you know, I think an anniversary this month, uh, mm. uh, you know, for its opening. But uh, I, I would say that when you go through the Pirates attraction, the original one at Disneyland in Anaheim, California, when you when you go through that grotto, mm -hmm. it's very claustrophobic. You're you're really sort of in this cavern, and at the end of that you pop out into this magnificent, huge space with, a, with the Spanish galleon, the pirate ship, bombarding the Spanish town. It's really one of the most spectacular reveals, I think, in any of the attractions for, for me, you know? And I'm, I'm always, it's always breathtaking when it happens. And I've been through that ride hundreds of times. Yeah, I'm the same way. That's probably my favorite ride. And you can see I'm wearing my... Pirates of the Caribbean shirt as well. Um, for the same reason, the first time, I did not know that was coming the first time I was at the park. And when you go down that waterfall and then you emerge into this battle scene, it's like, it's mind blowing really the first time you, you see it and it just stays with you. And then everything else is just so amazingly done. There's so much level of detail and the artistry in these figures um, that it just, it, it's a great ride. And it just, it, that's why it's iconic. Can you talk a little bit about the planning? Because initially, right, when they started to plan this ride, like there wasn't really the space they needed, I right. think, that, right? And so- Yeah, and, and, that, and, and again, you know, here, here, here's the brilliance of, of Walt. You know, Walt, Walt was more concerned about the, the, the creativeness, the, the entertainment uh, of everything that he did. He wasn't afraid to spend the money that needed to be done. 
You know, I mean, we saw that with 20,000 leagues under the sea, you know, they, they shot the whole squid attack in a soundstage that they, a, they built the soundstage specifically for 20,000 leagues under the sea because the floor was removable and there was a water tank underneath the floor, right? So they could fill, you know, film this, this squid attack on the Nautilus uh, in the soundstage in Burbank, right? And the first, you know, after they shot it, uh, uh, Walt reviewed the footage and he said, no, we could do better. And, and it was a quarter million dollar reshoot, you know, whereas other people might have said, eh, OK, it's not great, but it's OK. Let's just let it go. You know, Walt, Walt was always about the quality and the details. Uh, and, and I think, you know, when you look at any of these attractions um, like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're so layered with detail that you see different things each time you go through, depending on where you're looking, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think that's, you know, part of the timeless quality of it is that they put the, the, that layered detail and texture into these attractions and they didn't cut corners, you know, whereas other companies do other companies, you know, well, it'd be nice if we could do that, but we can't, we don't have that, you know, we don't have the budget for that. You know, I think, you know, it's important to deliver uh, top quality. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, I take that I take that um, uh, seriously in and how I put books together because I want people to pick up one of my books and go, wow, you know, it's got some weight to it. It's, you know, he chose a heavier paper. You know, it, I want it to be something that people will cherish for a long time. You know, I don't want to do it uh, as cheap as possible. No, and you can tell, like I said, it's a beautiful book. And I think, like you said, going with the heavier stock, it makes those pictures really gorgeous. You know? it, it does, you know, and, and, and there's less when you're turning the pages or if you pull a page up uh, to look at it a little closer, you're not getting uh, the images on the backside bleeding through. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there, there's a lot of considerations that go into it. And, and so, you know, to me, it is in the details. It is, you know, they say the devil's in the details. It is, you know, <laughs> uh, because that that's really what matters. Yeah. And that's why they were so far ahead of everybody. They had the money, but they had the, the artists and they had the dedication to making it as good as possible and, and investing in the details that no other park that came after them really caught up to them until I think until Universal did the Harry Potter stuff. I don't think anybody had come close to what Disney had done for at yeah. that point, 50 plus years. There's a quote that I, 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 I like to, to, you know, say once in a while and, and Walt, Walt said this, it was, we're not making pictures to make money. We make money to make pictures, <laughs> you know? And, and, and when you think about that for a second, he he's not being driven by uh, the dollars, you know, he's being driven by, you know, we're going to do the best we possibly can and it will stand the test of time. And, and when you look at a lot of the films from the studio, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Bambi, Pinocchio, these are films that are timeless, that are generating revenue for the company year in and year out. Uh, every five or six years, there's a whole new generation of kids to see these films and mm -hmm. they hold up. They, they transcend generationally. Uh, and, and I think you have to strive for that. Uh, you, you don't want to do something fast and cheap because it'll sit on the shelf for three weeks and then it's gone. Right. You, you want to put everything you got into it and hope that something's going to last longer than, you know, it was anticipated to. Yeah, and they certainly have with almost everything they've done has fit that mold. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about uh, the pirates, and for people who don't know, like um, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at, at Disneyland is to me so much better <laughs> better than the one at Disney World, just because that beginning of the ride, like you were talking about the grotto, and they also have that restaurant, which I think was the first restaurant in Disney, the, right? the, the Blue Bayou. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a beautiful beginning of the ride. And yeah. it just, they just gradually suck you into that ride where you start out like on the bayou and then huh. you're, you're under the caves and then you eventually go down two waterfalls there. I think there's only one waterfall in, 
Disney World because they needed to get under the tracks at Disneyland, yeah. right, to get more space. Because initially, they didn't have the space. And yeah, I, I mean, initially, Pirates of the Caribbean was going to be a walkthrough attraction of these tableaus like the grotto, you know, mm -hmm. that the guests would walk by and, you know, stand and look at for a moment and enjoy. Uh, and it was going to be uh, underneath the uh, New Orleans Square. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as they were progressing with, you know, all the ideas that were coming up and what they wanted to do, I think at one point, Walt realized that we just don't have enough room. We do have to. And, and they made made the decision to go underneath the tracks and build the show building uh, outside the berm. Mm. Uh, and I think that was probably one of the, the best ideas that they ever had because they they really created one of the most iconic uh, immersive attractions that's ever been done uh, in my mind. Yeah. I mind as well. And especially at that time, it was far away beyond anything anybody had done. Really. Right. And that was the last ride. Well, pretty much everybody considers it the last ride that Disney well, worked on. Or it was really had a hand well, in overseeing. It, it, yeah. I mean, look, you know, the Haunted Mansion had been in development since the early 60s. You know, so certainly, you know, Walt was having input on all of that uh and and they even had the building you know the 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 mansion had already been built uh uh before walt passed away uh but the for the actual attraction installation yeah pirates is probably the last one that walt uh and, and even towards the very end uh because he passed away in december of 66 uh, I think uh, by uh, it was September or October uh, of 66, uh, he couldn't even go down into the attraction. He asked uh, Claude to go down. I convey that story in the in the Pirates chapter of the book um, that, you know, uh, Claude went down and, and, and did the walkthrough and came back and described things to, to Walt. Mm -hmm. And Walt really trusted Claude. Uh, they, they had a, a really special relationship. Yeah, you also had a great story there um, in that on that ride where when they had the a scale model of the of the ride that they put Walt on a on an office chair, I think, and then kind of pushed him through yeah. as if yeah. he was on the ride himself so he could get a feel for how the how it yeah. was coming along. Yeah, and, and and you know that that's not unusual. I mean, again, you know, these guys invented the process. And so I remember going through the model shop. That was one of the favorite places I used to like to walk through. And so oftentimes if I went over to the commissary to have lunch, I always wanted to give myself like 15, 20 minutes because I'd walk through the model shop to see what they were working on because mm -hmm. it was always something great happening. And, <laughs> and, and they would, they would do, you know, small models and then they'd scale those models up and make them bigger. Uh, and then with attractions, uh, a lot of times they'd, they'd have, have all these tableaus built uh and you could walk through as if your head was the ride vehicle um and you could kind of just navigate through this this ride path and and see all the different tableaus i remember doing that for uh the splash mountain uh model uh that's pretty cool which is really cool that. yeah <laughs> um so going back just a little bit there so yeah you mentioned like new orleans square I forget what year they they did that. That was a huge investment for Disney when they. Yeah, I, I think he quipped at the opening that it, it, New Orleans Square costs more than the entire Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, look, I I think there was a lot of naysayers uh, about uh, you know uh, how uh, you know the fact that Walt was building this uh, amusement park. Uh, there were, there were a lot of people who, who thought he was crazy, not having a midway, uh, and, and, you know, he had a vision in his mind of building a park that was going to be clean and safe and fun for, for the entire family and, and not some seedy carnival attraction, you know? And, and so, you know, from, from that standpoint, uh, it was an immediate hit when he opened it. 
Mm -hmm. even though you know we've all we all know all the problems they had you know they were laying asphalt on main street the day before it opened walt had paint a paintbrush in his hand painting stuff you know tomorrowland was a disappointment there wasn't enough stuff in there but you know what he got the doors open and it was a hit and the the, it was a cash cow that allowed him to really have the money to start doing all the things he really wanted to do. And that's why there was sort of that second opening in 1959, you know, the, they, they, they sort of describe uh, uh, that second opening with the sub ride and the Matterhorn and all of that as being like the second opening of Disneyland, because, you know, some of these big, more expensive attractions were able to be installed. Yeah, that's really when you start to start to see them really move the technology ahead on these yeah. rides. Um, so, I think it was around '63 or so when they built the outside of the Honda Mansion. And yeah, it's kind of uh-huh. sat empty there, and they had that cute sign in front of it, like you go apply to be a to be a ghost or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they're working on the pirates as well, and it took a long time to finish these rides because it stopped in the middle to kind of work on the World's Fair. Right. And we've talked about that a couple of times on the show, uh, but we haven't talked about Claude's role yeah. in, in the World's Fair. And this is a big event that really impacted the rest of the parks and Walt Disney World as, as well. Sure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Claude's involvement on some of the key rides there at the World's Fair? Well, you know, um, uh, there was the, the Carousel of Progress, the GE Carousel of Progress, which was something that, that Claude had come up with prior to the world's fair and bob gurr actually i i I believe i convey this story because i interviewed bob uh bob uh um uh suggested that they they you know pull out this idea that claude had a few years earlier about the theater where the audience would revolve around a, a stage in 360 and uh so you've got the ge carousel of progress and then you've got the ford magic skyway and the whole uh audio animatronic dinosaurs and cavemen that were you know uh for that time travel uh attraction uh sponsored by ford um and and then the the uh illinois the state of illinois uh mr lincoln um claude didn't have as much to do with that one uh as some of the others uh but then you had the small world uh and what what those attractions for the 64 65 world's fair really uh show i think people is walt's ability to repurpose great things Mm -hmm. because each one of those attractions that they did for the world's fair eventually some portion or all of migrated to Disneyland. You know, they put in the GE Carousel of Progress. Uh, they, they took uh, part of the prehistoric section of Ford Magic Skyway, and that, that became uh, the um, uh, uh, prehistoric uh, diorama. Uh, and that you can uh, see when you go on the train right yeah and you see that when you go through the train uh where the grand canyon diorama is which claude claude was the show designer of that uh and then uh mr lincoln uh really spawned the whole hall of presidents uh essentially uh so you know and then of course uh a, a, a small world that they did for PepsiCo at the PepsiCo Pavilion. The small world has become like one of the most iconic uh, park attractions. I mean, it's all over the world, now, you did know. And Claude, do the the layout for it's a small. Uh, he 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 actually uh, uh, did. Uh, uh, yeah, he relayed out the attraction for Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mary Blair did the whole exterior. Uh, uh, Ro- Roly Crump had done uh, the the Four Winds Tower that was in front of the PepsiCo Pavilion, which apparently now resides in a uh, in a, a creek uh, next to uh, the World's Fairgrounds because it was it was like cut apart and dumped. Uh, I, I, I'm hoping someday somebody actually does an archaeological uh, uh, 
you know, dig uh, and, uh, you know, in flushing meadows and, and, and uncovers what's left of it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so moving back in time, forward in time a little bit. So we talked about the parts of the, the Caribbean, the Haunted Mansion, it kind of went through a bunch of hands in terms of writing the story for it and people who are working on it. Sure. And uh, I think it was after the World's Fair, Walt gets Claude involved. And so it eventually becomes like Claude kind of working with Mark Davis and they both kind of have different visions. Yeah. And, I, I, and, and you know something, I, we made it a point to really debunk uh, this myth out there in, in Disney fandom that, that somehow Claude and Mark didn't get along. It's the furthest thing from the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, they socialized. I know Alice, by the way, uh, Alice uh, Davis. You know, Mark and Alice and uh, Claude and Evelyn, uh, uh, you know, socialized after hours. They were friends. They were all friends. Um, you know, one of the photos of uh, Claude at the TWA terminal in New York uh, was, was uh, given to us by uh, Alice uh, to use, you know, and it was the photo was taken by Mark Davis, you know, so they were they were friends. Mm -hmm. um, but I can tell you from my own experience, when you're working with a group of artists and like for me, when I was working at Walt Disney Animation Studios, you know, you have five, 600 artists. Not everybody is in lockstep. You know, we all have our own artistic sensibilities and that's what these guys had. They had their artistic sensibilities. It didn't mean they didn't get along. They just had different viewpoints on certain things. You know, Mark wanted it to be a more comical uh, uh, Claude wanted it to be a little spookier. They, they each got what they wanted, you know, because you, when you go into the haunted mansion, it is a spooky thing that then turns comical and fun. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it's what makes it so special too. I think that's why. I, yeah, absolutely. Without question. Because there's that tension in the early part of the ride that Claude builds up and you don't know what you're going to get. And then like the tension is released with kind of the Mark Davis gags. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The hitchhiking ghosts and, you know, the singing statue heads and, you know, the, all of that. Uh, but I, you know, again, I, I think it's br brilliantly executed and, uh, and, and it's because of both of them working together mm -hmm. and the rest of the leadership at Imagineering that, you know, it, it really was an attraction. It was the first attraction completed with you know, the first major attraction completed without Walt. Uh, and it was kind of done by committee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had to figure know? out a way of yeah. working basically. And yeah. And, 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 yeah. And it really was sort of a period of what would Walt have done? Mm -hmm. What would Walt do? You know? And, uh, and the thing is, is that what Walt would have done was innovative new stuff. You know, there, there was a, a, a period of time after Walt passed away where there was a lot of people just asking what, what, what would Walt have done as opposed mm -hmm. to moving forward and carrying on his vision and his philosophies, uh, not as living in the past, but taking them into the future. Yeah. And like you said, there's, there's like three years, I think, before between Walt dying and them finishing that ride. So that was like a big test for them to know that they could yeah. do it. Um, that covers a lot of the, the rides, uh, at least that's the, the later yeah. chapters of, of the book there. Um, other, we've skipped over a lot of stuff. What would you like to talk, tell us uh, about? Well, Claude you know we something, I, 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 I think one of the, uh, one of the interesting things is the versatility of uh, Claude uh, as a show designer, because when you look at what he accomplished, you know, he, do, he does Pirates of the Caribbean, which has like 60 some odd audio animatronic figures in it. It's on a grand scale. It's super detailed. And right after that, he does Adventure Through Inner Space, which is probably the most minimalist attraction that was done uh, at, at the parks. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it relied more on uh, uh, the audio narration uh, and uh, the uh, uh, minimalist uh, uh, idea that you were being miniaturized uh uh into in, into this world of atoms 
Yeah, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book because I've never been on that ride. I never was on it before it yeah. away. But it sounds fantastic. And especially because you said like it's it's pretty simple, but it's the the way they do it and the the mood of the thing. And it's also one of the first, I think it was the first use of like the omni mover where you can the chair the car can rotate around so you're only yeah I, you know i it, it, it's sort of a, a, a similar uh inspired by kind of uh you know early version of that people mover or mm-hmm. omni mover if you will uh uh ride system but you know, I you know again, I it it really show showcases his versatility and uh, willingness to uh, tackle anything, you know. And so, you know, what that shows me is you've got a guy who can 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 uh, really shift gears and fit into any kind of a budget and come up with something that's engaging. Um, you know, that particular attraction was a free attraction, the adventure through inner space, uh, it was sponsored by Monsanto and it was the kind of attraction, uh, that, uh, w- was, you know, almost, uh, I, I want to, I, and I think I say this in the book, it, it, it's kind of like a laserium kind of, uh, 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 thing you know because it's minimalist it's in the dark it's you know Mm. it it sounded a little psychedelic too yeah Yeah. exactly and and it was also like you know the tunnel of love and people were smoking pot in there (laughs) and you know and 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 it was also on hot days people would hightail it over there to cool cool off Uh. for for a little bit you know because it was all air conditioned (laughs) oh that's great um this has been fantastic. Before I want one story I'd like you to tell before we wrap it up would be uh, I think it's at the World's Fair. And obviously, you, I, what you just described is like why Claude is, was Walt's go to guy. Like he was so versatile. He could do so many different things. And he was great at, you know, bringing people together and being a team player. Yeah. Um, so after the World's Fair, like the, the rides that Claude worked so well on and things went so well at the World's Fair, Disney gave him an award of some type you want to talk about, but he wouldn't let, like he, I guess he had a habit of, he would never really like reward people or congratulate them for doing a job. And so he gave him this award and then he said, you know, I gave you the award. And then he said, it was just for like an anniversary of working there for so many years, as opposed to the job well done that he did on the, on the ride. Yeah, I you know I, again I I think Walt Walt was stingy in in doling out uh, praise, hmm. uh, but when he did, it really meant something, you know. And, and, and you know again, uh, you know there there were so many great stories that I I put in that book. You know there there was you know the fact that you know Claude had only been up to Walt's office a handful of times. Uh, which shows you the fact that that Walt wandered. Walt mm. liked to walk around. In fact, he came in on weekends and he would walk around. He'd go into people's offices and, you know, and, and some of the artists were savvy to it because they'd hide stuff, <laughs> you know, so he wouldn't see the whole thing, you know, before they ready to send it to him. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, you know. I think the other thing that pops out from your book along those lines is that, he was really had the vision. Like every time he'd come in and he'd walk through and see what people were doing, and he'd be like, Oh, that's good, but you should change it this way and that'll yeah. make it work better. And he always had that knack. And I think that was the big worry for people after he passed away was, you know, like who's they- gonna do that? Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. And and, and you know, it, it did take them. I mean, they they kind of uh washed around in that what would Walt have done uh moment for like almost 20 years. Uh, and it wasn't until the management change out, thanks to Roy E. Disney, that uh, they they started to move forward again, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, with, with making an animated film, it was always about you, you every every discipline improved on uh, the one before, you know, uh, so, you know, you you're taking storyboards and you're creating layouts 
and you're figuring out the camera moves and then you got the animators putting the characters in every step was an improvement it's the same same progression when you're designing an immersive attraction you're mm -hmm. telling a story but you're telling a story in a three-dimensional environment where your guest is going to be part of that story um and uh and it has to develop over over time uh and there's a lot of people that have input into those things uh and i think the the great thing about walt aside from being a casting director was was his his ability to bring fresh eyes into a room and say wow like you just said this is great but you know if you fix this thing it'll be better you know i i often uh think of the the one uh, story back on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, uh, Ward Kimball animated this whole soup eating sequence, mm. uh, which got cut from the film. Uh, I mean, it, it's brilliant animation. People can see it as a bonus feature on some of the DVD releases of Snow White, but it, it's a gorgeously animated. A lot of time was put into it. It's funny and everything. And there, there's, it's top quality. But in the context of the film, Walt felt it didn't move the story forward. Hmm. And that's why he cut it out and, you know, almost lost Ward Kimball, you know. Uh, and that's why Ward got Jiminy Cricket for Pinocchio. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's what made Walt a great storyteller. He's a great editor. Yeah. yeah and, that, and that's really what it boils down to. I mean, when you look at a lot of those films too, uh, those early films, uh, there, there's, there's less dialogue and there's a lot more in the way of visuals. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's something that's been lost today. When you, when you look at a lot of the animated films coming out today, they're very heavy in dialogue. There's just a lot of talking going on, you know? That's I mean, true. just <laughs> look, look at the script for Bambi and then look at the script for, you know, Encanto. It's like crazy. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, a lot of talking and a lot of songs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, this, this has been fantastic. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. And your book is terrific. I recommend it to everybody, all of our listeners. Well worth picking up. Um, thank you again for being on the show. Uh, I, I do want to let your listeners know it, they can go to my website, davidbossert.com. Uh, and there's links to all my books in there. There's a whole bunch of free articles for people if they're interested in reading about Disney history. Uh, I think there's like 60 articles up under the articles tab. There's also free stuff. There's a free stuff tab. If people want to get book plates for any of my books, signed book plates or bookmarks or coasters or things like that, they can go there. And also, I did want to let people know that I am taking pre-orders on a new book called The House of the Future, Walt Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's Vision of Tomorrow. Uh, and that book is going to come out next year. Uh, but people can lock in uh, and reserve a copy, a signed copy, uh, and pre-order it now at a reduced price uh, because I'm doing it through Indiegogo. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, yeah. I highly recommend that. That's what I did with this book. I pre-ordered it and got it autographed. Yeah. Um, and for people, it's, it's B O S S E R T. That's correct. Yeah. It's David, David Bossard, B O S S E R T.com. Well, again, thank you very much, David, for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. It, it was, it was my pleasure. And, uh, thanks very much for having me on. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. And as we say, on all our shows, we will see you real soon. Mm -hmm.